0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Joining us on the island today is the Reverend Mr. Joshua Vinny, Assistant Professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. He's currently finishing up his research analyzing various images of future blessing in the Old Testament prophets. Hi, Josh, and welcome to the island. Good morning. Okay, for the purposes of your time on the island, you have a suitcase full of books, five anyway... And we're stipulating that you've already got your English Bible, your Greek New Testament, your Hebrew Old Testament, including the Aramaic and the Septuagint. So beyond those, you can have five books on this desert island until you're rescued. What five books are they and why?
2: Well, I decided the first book would be practical, the U.S. Army Survival Manual.
1: That's brilliant, actually. You're the first person to have something that was really and truly useful. Tell us about this, the U.S. Army Survival Manual. Survival Manual. Do you know
2: this volume? I actually haven't looked at it yet, but I uh, did a little research to see what was the best survival manuals out there, and this one came highly recommended.
1: Does it have a section on surviving desert islands?
2: It has a section on starting fires and probably water gathering and what not to eat and what to eat and uh, and other such stuff.
1: A million and one things to do with coconuts?
2: Right. I thought about the book 101 Ways to Cook Coconuts, but I gave up on that one.
1: All right. You probably can think of them yourself. So this is an interesting choice and I must say, somewhat unique so far in these episodes. Well, good. It signals a practical bent of mind, and perhaps also it signals that we're dealing with someone who has some experience in the out-of-doors.
2: Yes. I grew up in Alaska and Montana, and my father was an avid hunter and fisherman and camper. And so when we moved to Alaska, when I was just out of kindergarten, we camped the whole way up, and every night, just out of kindergarten, remind you, I started the fire.
1: And you didn't burn down the camp? Or I the... did
2: not. I, I, Having now have a kindergartner, I'm a little uh, shocked at what my parents allowed me to do. <laughs>
1: How did you start it? Did you start it as we did in Boy Scouts with the twine and sticks and so forth? Or?
2: No, no. I think I just used matches. With
1: what would you hunt now? You'd be on a desert island, and mm-hmm. so you, your resources will be somewhat limited. I, and I don't even know what sort of game would live on this island. So
2: Right. Well, I think uh, one of the chapters included there is making of snares. Oh. And so that would be a very helpful thing, though. I imagine, yeah, it would probably be rats or something that you would get to eat.
1: Ew. <laughs>
2: it's meat. Well, I suppose that's true. I must say, in all
1: my life, I have never once contemplated the possibility of eating a rat. I guess the rats on a desert island might be a little healthier than the rats that I knew growing up, so
2: if there's a choice I won't, but if it's that or just coconuts. Snares has a sort of Old Testament feel to it. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And maybe birds. That would be the other thing if there were birds coming by or
1: Yeah, one would think. I mean, at least in the movies on Desert Islands there are birds and, and so, there might be well, definitely. there might be boars. One, right, wild boars. Right.
2: That would be even more fun. So you'd want a spear, maybe, of, some, right. of some sort, Yeah. at
1: least for self-defense, in case it turned out that it wasn't actually an utterly deserted island. All right. That's interesting. Okay. What's your second choice?
2: My second choice is um, find a one-volume edition of The Lord of the Rings. If it's a
1: reasonable set, you can have the set. I, I can have the set. Yeah. All right. You're allowed. Apparently, our faculty travel with really large suitcases, so (laughs) you could wedge that in there. Sounds good. Tell us about the trilogy and why you want it on the island with you. What is it about that series that attracts you?
2: Well, as I thought about being on a desert island, I not only need to know how to survive, I probably will need entertainment. And it's just a great, gripping series, and uh, one that you could read again and again And again, and again, if necessary.
1: I must admit, I have not finished. I read the first. I read The Hobbit to the kids, and then they took off reading Lord of the Rings themselves. And I have not finished the first volume of the trilogy. And I haven't seen the films because I told the children I want to read the books before I see the films. And they're actually sitting on my desk in my den. (laughs) (laughs) Time to take them up. My children are a little disappointed that I haven't read them yet. It's on my list of things to do. What is it particularly about The Lord of the Rings that attracts you?
2: Oh, it's sword fighting. It's romance. You know, it has all the great elements of a good novel, and yet it has a lot of Christian imagery that you can find in it also. But I probably appreciate it most just because it is a really good story that makes you contemplate and think about Colin and other such things.
1: Do you have a favorite volume, or is there a favorite episode in the epic story?
2: That's a tough, probably not. Do you have a favorite character? I guess Strider, who then becomes the king, Aragorn. He's the one who's the great swordsman and other such things. So there are others like that. He's the character who really... I mean, they all develop somewhat, but he's one who really develops throughout it.
0: You're listening to Office Hours hours. from Westminster Seminary, California. What's your third volume?
2: My third volume is uh, Calvin's Institutes. I imagine that's been said before.
1: I'm not sure, actually. You might be the first.
2: I figured I had to say it in order not to get in trouble with the president.
1: (laughs) Tell us about Calvin. When did you first read the Institutes, and what is it about
2: them? I read them during seminary, and I think I had read parts of them before that, but uh, more so during seminary. And as I thought of being on a desert island, I did still want some theological engagement to go on. And probably when I want to look up something, I look it up in Berkhoff, because I want the terseness of Berkhoff for that. But on a desert island, when I have lots of time, I like Calvin's style as he goes through and examines these And you just continually impressed with his insight as he delves into these issues.
1: Do you have a particularly favorite place in the Institute, a favorite book, section, passage?
2: It's something I haven't picked up for a while. And so I really, I can't say there's a favorite place right now. So it'd be nice to be on the desert island so I get a chance to read it again. Your fourth volume. My fourth volume. Just to preface this, when you said five volumes, I actually thought of the five, even without the ones you mentioned. And if I was actually on a desert island, even though I teach Hebrew and Old Testament, I probably wouldn't have taken my Hebrew Bible as one of my five if I had to be stuck on an island. It was a tough choice. So I have on my list here a study Bible. I put the ESV study Bible, and I probably could have done the NIV either. I've used both. I just got the ESV not too long ago. And so when I thought of being on a desert island, you know, I want a biblical text, but I like the study Bible editions, and I like them for what they're useful for. They're not a great commentary, usually, not real in-depth in this or that, but uh, they give you quick and easy information on simple questions you have as you go through. And so I'm actually surprised somewhat how often I turn to a study Bible just to get a quick answer. It's an easy way to do that. And so I think that would be definitely one of the five that I would want.
1: I envision based on my conversations with the faculty, that we tend to travel with large suitcases <laughs> in which we've stuffed these books. But I guess I sort of imagined you've got your Greek Bible, your Hebrew Bible, and so forth, maybe in a backpack or something. And by the way, all of this seems to be floatable, too. That's the marvelous Definitely, thing. Definitely. <laughs> it survives. It's, yeah, it's in
2: that it, waterproof bag that we always carry our books in.
1: Exactly. And so all of this floats to the island. So you've got your text with your text of Scripture. But still, you've got your English study Bible. So that's interesting. Since you're just Just now sort of engaging the ESV, do you have any initial impressions of it as distinct from, say, the NIV or other English translations?
2: Yeah, I guess I could comment a little bit on that. I grew up with the NIV, and I still very much enjoy it. As I've compared and especially doing text criticism with students, I find that I often side with the NIV over the ESV in places where they differ. But that's not to say that I necessarily prefer the NIV over the ESV. Uh, they're both just doing a little different things. But yeah, the uh, the NIV seems much more likely to go with uh, a Septuagint or other rendering. The ESV seems to side more with the Masoretic text more often.
1: All right, let's sort out a couple of things here, then we'll go back. When you say text criticism, what does that mean?
2: That is the process of looking at the available evidence we have for the Hebrew Bible or the Greek Bible, and then analyzing it, because in that evidence we find differences, we find— You're talking
1: about copies.
2: Copies. Okay. Right, right. We have copies of the Hebrew Bible, and we have it in Hebrew, and we have it in Greek, the most important ancient translation, but also Syriac and other Aramaic and such. And so when we look at the evidence, we find that there's places where the Hebrew that we have differs from the Greek that we have. And so then you have to ask the question, why is this? And march through the process of trying to get back to what would have been the original and see how various processes could explain the differences that we now have.
1: And so the different translations have slightly different approaches to which choices they make, which decisions they make, which influence then how they end up translating various passages. By and large, these are minor differences, but sometimes they can be interesting, helpful, enlightening.
2: Definitely. Yeah, most are quite minor. And even the ones where it maybe significantly alters the reading of a verse, it doesn't really significantly alter the theology of the passage.
1: What are you finding in terms of the differences in translation beyond text criticism, but just the translational philosophy between the ESV and the NIV? And when we come back after this break, I want you to answer that question.
0: In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California, has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. The NIV
2: is definitely better English, more often, you could say, or at least that's, I would say, what they're trying at. When we talk about translation, we have a range. Now, some will say they're literal and some will say they're dynamic equivalent. They're all dynamic equivalent, but they uh, vary more from the uh, original word order and and syntax and such, um, depending on what they're trying to do, and the NIV, I would say, varies more from the uh, the original word order and such because it's trying to put it into what is more normal English, whereas the ESV keeps the word order more often. It can't do it all the times, so otherwise you could never you'd never be able to read it in English. So yeah, I think they're both readable in English and both uh, communicate well, but their translation philosophy is slightly different in that.
1: Sometimes people have distinguished between word-for-word and thought-for-thought. There are other ways of accounting for the different translation philosophy. I remember when the ESV came out, that was a matter of discussion.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say none of them can be just word-for-word, but it's always on a continuum, so they can be striving more for that versus not trying to do that at all.
1: Existentially, how has it been making a change? I mean, have you changed the Bible you take with you to church, or is this just a matter of reference?
2: It really hasn't been a big change in that. I've used DSV on and off for a number of years and still use the NIV, so if I really want to look at the passage, I look at it in Greek or Hebrew.
1: In the history of my Christian life, I've probably used, I don't know, five or six translations, so I'm a little bit of a mutt. I started off with, well, the very earliest days, the RSV, with which I had trouble, and then somebody gave me a living, and then I remember reading the Phillips for a while, and then I read maybe the NIV. Then in seminary, I used the ASV quite a bit, one of our profs back then liked the ASV, and then the— I think I was back to the NIV for a while and then to the ESV, and then somewhere in there there was a period when I was using the New American Standard. So I have a whole range of Bible translations, particularly with various passages. I memorized one passage from one translation and another passage from another translation, and sometimes it's a challenge trying to find things depending on for what translation I memorized something.
2: Now, I can understand that. And I do think the different translation philosophies, they can be helpful for different things. The one I carry around in my bag is a New American Standard. Oh, interesting. But I think it's more understandable if you know Hebrew and Greek, Hmm. because it's on the continuum is the most close to word for word or keeping the same word order. And so I can usually think of what the Hebrew is behind what it is they're translating. Are there other translations you use for other purposes? Those are really the main three that I've used most extensively.
1: One other question about translation off the top. What do you think of the various interlinear and readers? There are versions of Scripture that are designed for those who read Greek or who read Hebrew and Aramaic. What do you make of those? How, how useful are they, and should students avail themselves of them, or should they shun them?
2: I think that either the readers' editions that, that are just coming out—they're rather new in the last five years, I think—that they can be very helpful because you still have to— have your minimum vocabulary and parsing skills as you approach it, and it's making you look fully pretty much at the Hebrew or the Greek to be able to read the text. So I think they're a great resource for students to avail themselves of. It will make hopefully reading easier in the sense that they don't have to carry around as many resources. And so if that will make them read their Hebrew and their Greek more often, then that'll be of great benefit. The other ones that I've used and like are parallel text, where it has the uh, Hebrew and Greek on one side and then the English translation on, on the other page. Because there, you still can immerse yourself in the Hebrew or the Greek, and then you can cheat and look at the English if you need to. Probably the worst is an interlinear because the Hebrew and the English are so close, or the Greek and the English are so close. On the page. On the page, that you just end up reading the English.
1: And if the goal is to learn to read the scriptures in the original languages, then having the interlinear
2: used to be called a pony. Right. You basically are reading through the English, and you think, oh, I want to look up that word. What is it in the original language? And then you look that up. So it's
1: not really helping you learn the original languages. If uh, the listener is interested in actually several of these volumes, I forgot to mention, several of these are available... Through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, (laughs) wscal.edu slash bookstore. You can get Calvin's Institutes there. You can also get the ESV Study Bible in a variety of formats. You cannot, I don't believe, get the U.S. Army Survival
2: Manual. I'll put in a request.
1: Although maybe the bookstore should should add that just in case, and uh, you can get Tolkien lots of places. You don't need the, the bookstore for that.
0: You're listening to Office Hours
1: from Westminster
0: Seminary, California.
1: Okay, then what is your fifth volume that you want with you on the desert island?
2: So this one I debated. Between two. One of them, I thought maybe I might get bored of Tolkien after a while. Don't say that because well, there are Tolkien on... lovers who That's will right. track you down and
1: say, what <laughs> What did you say? That's heresy. You can't say boring and I, Tolkien. I, I might just
2: need a break from okay. it. And so I thought I'm uh, just maybe looking out for you bring another uh, book for entertainment, something like uh, Les Mis.
1: Can you say the whole title just for the sake of the reader? You, the you want
2: to embarrass me. I can never get there.
1: Les Miserables. Thanks. All right. You can say that. Say Les Miserables.
2: Les Miserables. And what is it about Les Mis? It's, again, a story that draws you in and engages you and takes you through harsh times and high times. And I would imagine it would provide many, many hours of entertainment if you're stuck by yourself on a desert island. When did you first read it? I think it was in seminary. Oh, interesting.
1: Just avocational reading. Yeah. Evidently, we didn't give you enough to do. That's right. (laughs) um, If I'd known you were reading Les Mis, I would have assigned more reading in Medieval Reformation. uh,
2: Maybe I should clarify (laughs) that I didn't actually read it. I listened to it on tape. Oh, okay. And so I did it on commutes and other such things. One of the themes
1: that seems to unify at least some of your choices is the theme of stories. And so that's interesting uh, that you like stories, and you should. Talk about Scripture as
2: a story and as a collection of stories. I teach historical books. You know, most of them are historical narratives. And most, if you took percentages, probably be close to half, maybe not quite. You know, and so it's really interesting that God didn't just give us a systematic or, or something like that. There's something about the story, the narrative that, that is very important, that he's a God who works in history and tells us about his working in history through that. Especially in historical books, I press on the students that they aren't always preachy stories, you could say. You don't come to the end and it says, and this is the moral of such and such. And often sometimes it's even tough to see who is all being depicted in good light and bad light and such. And so I think the stories of the biblical text, they are very helpful because they make us slow down. We have to read them and reread them and think about them, and think about the bigger context and what comes before. And the biblical text is very good about alluding to something before. So you you read it in its immediate context, and then think of it and what comes before in the biblical account. And this great richness comes out. Reading stories, other places, I think uh, it can be helpful in reading the biblical story as you analyze the character development even in the biblical text and the plot how the uh, scene is being framed, and other such things as that.
1: It helps you to develop good reading skills or skills as an analyst of literature.
2: Very much so. Yeah, your sensitivities as a reader, they develop just as you read more and hear more stories.
1: Scripture is a sophisticated text— considered as a whole, but it's also a collection of nuanced, sophisticated texts considered on their own individually or the various books considered individually. What are other things a listener can do to develop reading skills to be able to profit from Scripture, not just as literature, but to access the truth of Scripture through the history and through the literature?
2: I'll stab at an answer and see if it hits what you're asking. Part of the process of learning to think harder, especially if we're dealing with narrative, is asking good questions. And the biblical text, especially Old Testament narrative, one distinctive feature of it that most people agree is you don't get a lot of extra detail. And so if it talks about something, the weather talks about where they are, all of those sorts of details, then you need to think about that. How is that important for the narrative as a whole? And so that's where different storytelling techniques find it differently. The great counterexample is Le Mez. He loves to give a lot of extra detail that you don't really need to know, but it enlivens the scenes and all of that. Adds color. Adds color and such. But yeah, biblical narrative is usually very sparse in uh, description. And intentional. Very much. It was, yeah, how they framed their historical narrative. And some of
1: the aspects that the reader might be tempted to pass over actually have some weight to them.
2: Very much so. Again, in historical books, one thing I drill into students is geography. In the Old Testament narrative, that can often be quite important. Where are they? Where are they going? What do they pass on the way? And so that gives another whole context, another whole layer with which to read that account and to bring out various richness in it.
0: Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.